It's Valentine's Day today, but we're not talking about love on this episode. We're talking about someone who definitely did not love his court-appointed attorney because that attorney was a malignant racist. But does that mean he deserves a new trial? It's a question being asked by a state Supreme Court. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government. I'm your host, David Schultz. There's no rule that says your lawyer has to like you. But what if your lawyer hates you, like really hates you? And not for anything you've done, but just because of your race. And what if that lawyer was assigned to you by the court and that lawyer is representing you in a case that could send you to jail for years? That's the situation Anthony Dew finds himself in. After being accused of running a prostitution ring, Dew accepted a plea deal in 2016 that put him behind bars for 10 years. Then, five years later, Dew discovered that his court-appointed attorney, Richard Doyle, had made dozens of extraordinarily racist posts on Facebook while he was Doyle's client. The revelation wasn't a complete shock. The attorney had exhibited bigoted behavior toward the black and Muslim Dew in person, for example, refusing to talk to Dew while he was wearing a religious head covering. Doyle was later suspended from public defender work and then died three years later. But the revelation of his racist Facebook posts felt like a smoking gun of sorts to do, and now he's asking the courts in his home state of Massachusetts to give him a new trial. And Dew's request is getting a lot of attention, not least because it's been taken up by the highest court in the state. It's also raising eyebrows because Dew says he's entitled to a new trial, not because of any specific mistakes his attorney made, but because of his attorney's beliefs. Bloomberg Law's Allie Reed has been writing about this case, and she covered the oral arguments at the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court last week. I brought her on the podcast to ask her how that went. But first, I had a quick logistical question for her. How did you discover these Facebook posts from jail? I believe that there was talk in the prison system. I think that there was somebody else who um, was was a client of Mr. Doyle's who had heard about the post, and, and word sort of spread from there. Yeah, I guess in a prison news spreads pretty fast um so he saw the or heard about these posts uh he said hey you know my lawyer while he was representing me was posting uh super racist and violent things about people who look like me and have the same faith as me Uh, and so now he's asking for a new trial um what is the basis for that so he makes two different claims in his appeal. The first is an ineffective assistance of counsel claim, which is a very hard argument to prove. And for that, he needs to pinpoint specific ways in which his attorney's poor representation impacted the case. So Mr. Dew's attorney did refuse to speak to him while he was wearing a religious head covering, and he did storm out of the room. But that's not going to meet the court's very high bar for evidence in these types of claims. Really? So you're, if your lawyer says, I won't talk to you if you're wearing your religious head covering, that's not grounds for a, you know, ineffective counsel argument? It's not. Mr. Dew's new lawyer even admitted that blatantly to me. So the the court is looking for evidence, like, for example, if the lawyer's success rates were vastly higher for white clients. That's something very specific that you can point to where Mr. Doyle didn't do something because of his racism. And that's evidence which Mr. Dew's current attorney just admits that he doesn't have. Hmm. Now, you know, the reason why this is getting so much attention and, and why people like you are covering it is because um, he lost in the lower court, but his case was accepted by Massachusetts highest court. That's pretty significant. 
Yes. So Mr. Dew's second claim where he faces better odds is that Mr. Doyle's racism constitutes a conflict of interest. So Mr. Dew believes his attorney's public anti-Black, anti-Muslim comments make it impossible for him to fairly represent somebody who was a part of the groups he actively hated. So if the court agrees, it would declare there was a structural error in the case and Mr. Dew would get an automatic new trial without having to pinpoint specific ways his attorney's representation harmed him. I see. So there's no, um, you know, there's he doesn't have to point to something that Doyle did wrong. He can just say this is a, uh, he never should have been my attorney in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. Now, this is getting a lot of attention from outside groups. Um, can you talk a little bit about who is weighing in here and who are, you know, all the groups, not all the groups, but maybe some of the groups that are filing briefs here? Yes. So the attention on this case is rapidly growing as it proceeds through the state's highest court. There were 10 different groups that filed amicus briefs in this case, including the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund and the New England Innocence Project. Mr. Dew is also backed by Lawyers for Civil Rights, the Muslim Justice League, and the Hispanic National Bar Association. These groups are all rallying together to support Mr. Dew because they recognize that this is a first-of-its-kind case that could influence the way that other states think about this issue. You wrote a, a really great story summarizing all of these issues and previewing the oral arguments that uh, happened last week. Well, uh, the oral arguments happened uh, on Wednesday, and you were watching. How did they go? What, what, are you, what sense did you get from, from listening to those arguments? They were very long and, and very, very technical. So the justices let Mr. Dew's attorney and the interest groups argue for almost triple their allotted time to make their case while they really battered them with hypotheticals. So their engagement in the ar- argument demonstrates that they are acutely aware of the impact this case will have. Their ruling will certainly be precedential. So they're very focused on making sure they get it right. Um, So a couple of the arguments that came up, one of them that the state of Massachusetts makes in their briefs is that defense attorneys can set aside their bias in professional settings. So they argue that in the same way that a defense attorney can set aside their own distaste and zealously represent someone accused of rape or abuse, they, they argue they can set aside their racial bias. But the justices seemed receptive to Mr. Dew's argument that there's no constitutionally protected class of people accused of crimes, whereas there's a constitutionally protected class of people with dark skin. Yeah. So did you get the sense, am I am I hearing you correctly, that you got the sense that it seemed like the court was leaning toward Mr. Dew here? It's very hard to predict exactly yeah, what they're yeah. going to say. I will say they, they did actually hand the state a win when they said that um, they, they weren't going to be receptive to the ineffective assistance of counsel claim. I would also say the justices spent a long time trying to figure out just how narrow or broadly they should be thinking about the issue. So they have three or four options they could either write an opinion that speaks to the narrow circumstances of this case where they have this incident with religious headwear that clearly suggests the attorney had a conflict of interest. They could write a broader opinion involving the entire portion of Mr. Doyle's clients who are black or Muslim, or they could write an opinion encompassing any defendant who can prove their attorney hated them. 
Um, the justices definitely seemed hesitant to write a ruling that would entitle 6,000 indigent defendants Mr. Doyle represented over his 20-year career to a new trial, although they did all seem aware of their obligation to root out prejudice in the judiciary. Yeah, because I think one of the quotes that you had in your story really hammered this home, which is that, you know, when you have a court-appointed defendant, in a way, this, the system that is trying you in the criminal trial is also appointing your lawyer. So there's a sort of unavoidable conflict of interest baked into it right there. So it's I can understand why the justices really want to make this process as bias-free as, as it possibly can be. Mm-hmm. And that's a particularly important issue for indigent defendants who don't necessarily have a lot of choice over which attorney they get. So... No one would pay to hire a lawyer who openly hates people that look like them. So why should a low-income defendant be subject to that kind of treatment? Right. And that's what I wanted to get into next, which is that it seems like, let's say the the justices go really big and rule in, in Dew's favor in the broadest possible terms. It still seems like in that instance, this would only apply to people who, first off, people who are charged criminally. This wouldn't apply to civil trials, of course. And even then, it would only apply to people with court-appointed attorneys. Do I have that right? That's right. And I think the very fact that there's no precedent for a case like this represents how rare the particular circumstances are. There are a lot of barriers the judiciary has set up to keep people from overturning their sentences. And the justices aren't going to write an opinion that entitles anyone to a new trial if they uncover one bigoted Facebook post their lawyer made 10 years ago. At the argument, the justices asked if a Blue Lives Matter believer could represent a black client without conflict. And the attorney representing the interest groups admitted the answer is yes. So, I mean, the closest parallel hypothetical the justices could agree upon was a neo-Nazi representing a Jewish client. That's the kind of extreme level of bigotry we're talking about here, not microaggressions or inappropriate comments. Uh, Finally, though, I want to talk about, you know, I think there's been a lot of people who are, including it sounds like some of the justices, who are worried about the implications of this if they go really big, where this almost creates like a moral belief test for attorneys, which makes some people kind of uncomfortable. That said, you know, it can be really, really, really hard to get a new trial Uh, if you believe your lawyer has made a mistake, as you talk about in your story. And that has real racial justice consequences for the criminal justice system. First, let me explain what that bar exactly is. So the Supreme Court developed a standard in a case called Strickland v. Washington for defendants to prove their counsel was ineffective, where they basically need to demonstrate that the result of a trial would have been different if the defendant had a more effective lawyer. That it has to be like outcome determinative. It can't just be that your lawyer was bad. It's that your lawyer was bad and therefore you lost the case. Exactly. In a lot of situations where court-appointed counsel is representing an indigent defendant, they, for example, in this case, the attorney met with the client three times total. And so they maybe had one or two conversations about the case whatsoever. And so it's very hard to then take that situation and say, here are X, Y, and Z places where my attorney made an, a mistake because of my race. Yeah, it's it's sort of, you know, you, you don't know what you don't know, it sounds like. You, you can't 
make an argument that you had a bad attorney if you don't know even know what your attorney did or didn't do, I guess. Exactly. And a lot of my sources have told me that trying to pinpoint some specific place where racism infected the case just isn't the way that racism works and it's not the way that bias presents itself in the judiciary. Attorneys make all kinds of decisions about how much time to spend on a case, how much they should investigate, how much they even believe what their client is saying. And any one of those places could be impacted if an attorney has distaste for who their client is as a person. All right. Well, uh, this is really fascinating stuff. Um, thank you, Allie, so much for talking. Uh, we'll uh, maybe have you back on when the order gets uh, handed down. Yes, that would be great. It should happen in the next four months. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor is Andrew Satter, and our executive producer is Josh Block. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Those nine justices in Washington can be hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court, the filings, the arguments, the opinions, and much, much more. Check in on Fridays with Bloomberg Law's Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon of the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.